Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. We ask that you would just, you would speak to us, speak to our hearts and to our minds, Lord. God, as we, as we long to serve you, long to live for you, long to live a life that is higher than just simply getting by, Lord, I pray, God, we would remind ourselves that the only way to have that, to experience that, is by a pursuit of God. Lord, please forgive us when you get bumped out of our lives. Please forgive us that when we look at our schedule for this past week, that we realize we spend no time with you, no prayer, no devotion, no contemplation or reflection. God, that is not what you called us to. And God, forgive us that we bump you out of the business of life, Lord, as we chase after things. Holy Spirit, we, come right, we ask you to come right now and you begin to help us to sort through and, and, and make wiser and better decisions. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're uh, visiting with us, we want to say welcome to you. We started a series off uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we call the series Scrambled. The whole idea behind the series is this, is that when we look at our lives, when we look at our schedules, one of the things we do not realize is that we've taken God and we've moved him out. From the morning, from the time that your head um, gets up from the pillow, or maybe afternoon, depending on what your night was before, or, and, and at nighttime when your head goes back to the pillow, when we look back over the day, we realize we never thought about God. Where is God, right? And what I have found in this series is that, as I've had conversations with people, is that it's not that Christians are angry with God or have proven God does not exist, but instead, it's we say yes to all these things, but by saying yes to these things, we are saying no to God. And so this idea of scramble is saying that we are chasing after, chasing after, chasing after, pursuing relentlessly after all these things, and God does not seem to be one of them. Last week, we looked at a book. Every week, we're kind of looking at a book. You've been getting a glimpse into my uh, reading list. Uh, we look, we've, uh, the book we looked at was called The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. By the way, great TED Talk by him. A little older, but uh, a great one nonetheless. And he says this uh, about uh, choice. Learning to choose is hard. Learning to choose well is harder. And learning to choose well in a world of unlimited possibilities is harder still. Perhaps too hard. What Barry is saying about, about our lives is that we have so much choice. He talks about the cereal aisle. You go to the cereal aisle of a grocery store, and it is lined with cereals. And he says what happens is all this choice can paralyze us. Right? We look at this idea of called FOMO, the fear of missing out. Right? We fear this, this pursuit. We fear chasing after something. But every time we chase after this, oh, that looks so much better. You're over here and your friends are taking selfie with a giraffe over here. You're like, I wish I was there. I want to pet a giraffe. Whatever it would be, we are always trying to pursue something that doesn't exist. We always fear we're missing out on something. And all it does is it exhausts us. What I hear constantly from everybody of every age and stage is that they're exhausted. Running, 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 gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, right? But that running and that chasing and that pursuing, it doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. It doesn't seem to be getting any further ahead. We looked at Jesus' teaching on worry last week. and We looked at Luke chapter 12 and said this, and Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and body and more than clothes. And so what Jesus was trying to help his disciples to understand is that the pursuits that you pursue are not wrong. Please hear me. These things are not bad or evil, right? But remember, the very first week we said that Jesus wants us to hate our lives. And some of you are like, I already hate my life, so I'm already there. there look, look how much I look like Jesus now, right? But when Jesus says, hate your life, he doesn't mean to hate your life in, in the way that we understand it. But biblically, when the, the Bible uses the word hate, what it's trying to say is, 
love all these things less than you love God. Because if you do not, these things will replace God. Right? God is being replaced in our lives by the busyness of our lives because we do not hate these things in our lives, right? Jesus says, unless you hate mother or father, brother or sister, you know, all the meaningful relationships. And it's not as if Jesus is saying, you know, you should be a loner by yourself. He's like, no, everything that you pursue after, you must love less than God. Because if you do not love it less than God, it will replace God. And we uh, wrapped up last week looking at Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11, of course, is the chapter of faith. And what I said to you is that when you look at the chapter of faith, you look through these men and women who did incredible things for God. And you're like, oh, these people are so spiritual, so holy. But this is the verses that we forget. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Right? Hebrews chapter 11 is is a chapter of faith about these individuals, men and women who do great things. But what the writer is trying to help us remember something is that some of them never saw the promises fulfilled. Some of them lived their entire lives believing in what God had and believing in a better way that God had for them, but they never experienced it. And so the writer uses the word foreigners and strangers on earth, right? Right now there is talk about refugees, right? We are, everyone is having this conversation and it is good. It's good to have this conversation, right? How do we become welcoming as a country? I talked a little bit about me being an immigrant from India. My family came from India to Canada, right? One of the things we try to understand is how is it that we become Canadian? What does it mean to be Canadian, right? And we talked about how, how that integration looks like, right? But we felt like foreigners and strangers in a, in a culture. The writer of Hebrews says, as Christ followers, that's what we are meant to feel like. It's when we look around this world and we see it making decisions and acting in certain ways, part of us needs to say that I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with this lack of compassion, this, this way of taking advantage of the poor and the, and the homeless and, the, and, and, and those, who are, those who need mercy. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with the relentless pursuit after riches, after fame, after fortune. That's not what I am. We are foreigners. We are strangers living amongst a culture that is pursuing all the pleasures it can, but not God. So that's kind of where we were last week. This week, we're going to kind of take a look, and uh, we're going to take a look at a, a guy named Jim Collins. Um, that talk you saw there, I was there at Catalyst when he taught that, and he's, he did this talk on, on, on what, it meant to be, what it meant to be great. And I got to tell you, his talk was so incredible. Him and I met afterwards at a signing table. Well, actually, I didn't really go by the signing table. I just walked by and said, hi, Jim. And it was, it was a meaningful moment for both of us. But uh, uh, Jim Collins has a book called Great by Choice. And by the way, all these books that I'm, I'm kind of presenting to you, they're not Christian books. They're not written by Christian people, but they are what I think if you apply some of the things you're talking about, you will draw closer to God. Jim Collins is a business guy. He talks about business and leadership. Yet this book, Catalyst Conference, was a Christian conference. It's a faith conference. And he was there speaking to us as, uh, as, as leaders. Uh, the people there from NGOs, uh, parachurch organizations. And he's trying to say, listen, here's what you need to figure out to think about when you talk about greatness. His latest book, uh, Great by Choice, uh, was, was talks about that. He says this, greatness is not a function of circumstance. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. See, we live in a culture of American Idol, right? Where a person we've never heard of walks up to the mic, belts it out of there, and is like, yeah, fame and fortune awaits them. But the problem with the American Idol is, is that that doesn't actually happen. Anybody who does amazing things in whatever industry that you want to think about, they are relentless in their discipline and, and their choice. They, are, they pursue things in a way that other people don't. 
Um, Jim Collins goes on to say uh, this about uh, goodness. Good is the enemy of great, and that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government, principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it is just so easy to settle for a good life. And when we take this and you apply it to Christians... There are so many good Christians. Ever people are talking about the uh, people leaving church today, the decline of the North American church, people leaving God and all that. And I hear that, I hear that, right? But in that noise, part of me says to myself, all these people might be good Christians, but where are the great Christians? And you know what? You know what it's like to be around a, good, a great Christian, don't you? It's when you have a conversation that when you leave that conversation, something about it is, is compelling you to live differently. I've mentioned before in the past, my wife and I have a mentor named Dr. Ron Kidd. He was a Pentecostal who became an Anglican. That's a whole other sermon altogether right there. But uh, he has been a mentor to my wife and I. He is, in my opinion, the person that most resembles Jesus. Not by look, but I mean in character and all that, right? He doesn't have a beard. But like, I'm like, if you were to say to me, what person most, is the most Christ-like person? I would say to you, is Dr. Ron Kidd. He has multiple PhDs. He is as brilliant as a human being as I've ever met, but yet he is humble. And he always takes time to meet and talk with me. And, 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 he, and he, like, he just, he's so compassionate, right? But every time I leave that conversation, here's what I say to myself. I'm such a pagan. I wish I could be like Dr. Kidd. I wish I could understand God like he does. Like he's 70 plus years and he loves Jesus all that time. And his depth of experience, like, I just want to love Jesus more. That's a great Christian. Where are they? Right? Where are these great Christians that make a leap from good to great? Well, in his book, Jim Collins says there's three characteristics of what it means for going from, uh, from, a great, from a good person to a great person, a good, a good leader to a great leader. He says the first thing that a great person, a great per, uh, leader has is a fanatic discipline. He says this, they display extreme consistency of action, consistency with values, goals, and performance standards and methods. They are utterly relentless, monomaniacal, unbending in the focus on their quests. Whenever you think about somebody who was great, whenever you think about somebody who's achieved some kind of greatness in whatever industry you want to think about, behind the scenes, that person has had a phonetic discipline. They have pursued it. They have, they have been unrelenting in their pursuit of whatever that goal was, right? To the point of almost extreme. Like people will say, oh, that person's a little over the top. Yes, but they will achieve something great because their discipline they have. Do you want to know the secret to success? It's simple. It's discipline. Is a, is a fanatic discipline in your life. So many people want to achieve great things, but just never seem to have the energy to do it. That doesn't happen. There is not one without the other. You want to talk about anything a great, great marriage, great uh, grades, great uh, career, whatever it is, is a fanatic discipline at the core of it. The second thing uh, Jim Collins says that uh, makes someone make a leap from good to great is productive paranoia. This is funny. Maintain hypervigilance, staying highly attuned to threats and changes in their environment. And when, especially when, all is going well. They assume conditions will turn against them at perhaps the worst possible moment. They channel their fear and worry into action, preparing, developing contingency plans, building buffers, and maintaining large margins of safety. Now, he uses the word margin. Here's how I want to explain it, right? If you have a paycheck, right, or, or you get paid, but by the end of the, before the next paycheck comes, it is gone, right? If your car breaks down or your phone gets stepped on or something happens, you have zero margin, right? And I was like, it's funny. I was like, yes, yeah, like me, that's me. We're, we're all in that boat, right? 
what Jim Collins says is people who, have, who make that leap from good to great, they don't live on 100% of their paycheck or 100% of their time or 100% of their energy. They live on 80% so that when things bad happen, see, what you have to understand is not if bad things will happen to you, it's when they will happen to you because they will happen to you, right? That's our North American naivety that we think that we live in this, this kind of pampered uh, culture that nothing bad will happen to us, but it does. And so people who make the leap from good to great have this paranoia to think that things are going bad. Now, the difference is, let me show you something here. They channel their fear and worry into action. A lot of people walk around with anxiety, right? <laughs> right? Those people, that anxious feeling you have, unless you act upon it. So if you're anxious about a grade or you're anxious about a relationship or your career or whatever, right? You take that anxiousness, that worry, and you channel it into action. If you do not, it just eats away at you. It just becomes something that just occupies your brain space and all you do is walk around with a cloud over your head. So uh, Jim Collins says that whatever a great person has, whatever a great leader has, they take that paranoia and they channel it into action that actually changes their life. And the final thing, and this is kind of, it almost seems like an an oxymoron. These two words don't seem like they should go together. But he says, the next thing that leaders have is empirical creativity. And this is what he says. When faced with uncertainty, leaders do not look primarily to other people, conventional wisdom, authority figures, or peers for direction. They look primarily to empirical evidence. They rely upon direct observation, practical experimentation, and direct engagement with tangible tangible evidence. They make their bold, creative moves from a sound empirical base. Now, here's what he's saying. You have to make decisions about your life, but you want to use data to make those decisions. Some of the things you may realize is as you ask people around you for their opinions... They don't know anything. You say, hey, what should I do? I don't know. You know, what did you do? I've never been in that situation, right? So what, what Jim says is that a great leader takes data. He says, okay, this is what's happening. This is the trend. And by the way, all three of these we're going to talk about next week but in a different way. But when I sat there and, and heard Jim Collins talk, this is actually where the seed for uh, UCC was planted. When I decided to do a church plant, to leave where I was to do this, this is where it was because part of my uh, reasoning was is that when I think about the future of the church, when I think about what the church could look like in Canada, in Waterloo, and, and further, UCC is my answer to that. Small church, intimate relationships, right? Fast and, and what we do and how we change, but also seeing the trends in regards to giving and all that. Small church seems to be the answer for this, right? So when I sat and I heard Jim Collins took notes in the margin I'm writing, apply this to church, apply this to what I'm thinking about. Whatever it is you want to be great at, these are the three things that you need to have in your life in order to do that. But of course, this is a church. This is not a business seminar. I'm not here to tell you about how to be a great business leader or a student and all that. Here's what I want to ask you, right? We have plenty of good Christians, but where are the great Christians? What is missing and why do most not make the leap? Like I think... Therefore, I am. No, I, I, um, I, I believe in my heart that we have churches full of good Christians, good, boring, risk-averse, people who not, do not make decisions to, to leap out into, the, and, into what God wants for them. People keep saying to me, if, you know, church is boring, God's boring. I'm like, you're doing it wrong. You, you really are. You think God's boring? Just give him your life for 24 hours, and it will be totally turned upside down. It is not boring at all. You're living it boring because you're living it safe. You're living it in a little bubble. You're living in a little compartment. This is my God bubble. Welcome to my God bubble. Don't touch it. He'll pop. 
Okay, you know, this, this is what we think God is. Like, no, it's not it at all. When we allow the Holy Spirit to take hold of our lives, when we begin to live uh, life as God wants, it will be disruptive. It will change, and it will be a little terrifying. I say to people that uh, how you know you're living the life that God wants you, you are happy but nauseous at the same time. You're smiling, but you want to throw up. Um, that's really what, what, how it is with God. It's like, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a fear in us. Like, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? It's kind of like, how, how do I explain this? Um, this past week, um, many of you know I, I deliver milk. I'm a milkman. And, uh, and not just chocolate milk. Oh, by the way, that, that joke kills with people sometimes. Um, so I, 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 there's a place in Stratford, there's a little cafe in Stratford that I deliver milk to. And one of the things I love about delivering milk is I'm an extrovert. I love people, right? So the people I drop milk off to, I talk to them, right? Even if they don't want me to. And uh, there's this little cafe in Stratford I deliver milk to. And I uh, dropped milk off this past week. And there's a girl that used to work there. Um, she was a student. She went to Trent University. And uh, I saw her picture and it said uh, over top it, in memory of. And of course, I'm like, what, 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 what happened? And I talked to the manager there. So this girl was actually there. She was working all summer long. Her and I would talk. She's in Peterborough at Trent University. I, uh, I went to school in Peterborough as well, too. So we talked about our favorite restaurants and all that. She thought it was weird that a pastor would be delivering milk. And so it was great conversations about theology, philosophy, life, all that kind of stuff. She was super nice. And I remember at the end of August, before she left, I gave her two of our bottles of chocolate milk. She loved it. And it was kind of my going away gift for her and, and, and just to be nice. So what happened was, as her manager told me, that uh, she was at school, fourth year, uh, I think environmental studies or something like that, and um, 22, like, like a really nice individual. She got a headache in, in class. She went home, uh, went to sleep, and had a brain bleed and passed away. And all I could think about was how fragile. I just talked to her a couple of weeks ago, full of life, vitality. No one would ever say to her, oh, your life is, is this short. We hear these things, but we don't actually believe it, do we? All I could think about after I left, that, uh, after I left the cafe and, and did my other deliveries, I was very much zombie-like because my heart was like, did I share Jesus enough? Did I, did, I, did, I, did I show my faith enough? Did I have conversation with God enough? Because I don't know her spiritual background. I don't know where she's. I don't. I don't. Right? I, there's no, uh, like, she fell to her knees and accepted Jesus kind of moment in the story. Just the story kind of put an ache in my heart, like, how fragile is life? How um, unknown is the future? And, 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 and I was like, did I, did I do a good enough job, Lord? Did I, did I share my faith enough to her that, you know, whatever would happen, you knew the future, I didn't. But did, did she know you? Did she, did she have that, right? And that's what I'm trying to tell you is that we think that life is going to go on the way it's going to go on forever, and it's not. There is a fragileness to life, and, and, and that's unfortunate, and that's, but that is life. So this leap to becoming a great Christian is something that we should not just talk about in a sense like uh, as, a, as a abstract idea. There are, there are people who need us to be what Christ has called us to be. In your classrooms, in your workplace, in your relationships, at your home, wherever you are, there is something more that God has called you to. And when we continually pursue after everything else and not God, those people are at risk. If you have your Bibles, turn to... Uh, Turn to three different Gospels. We're going to look at a story. We're actually going to take a look at it from three different perspectives. I call it three sides of the truth. Because whenever the Gospels, when one Gospel will tell us a story or give us a brief glimpse in the life of Jesus, we go, oh, okay. When two Gospels show the same story, you're like, wow, okay. 
when three Gospels bring emphasis to the story, it's important. And when the four Gospels bring it, you might as well tear that page out and memorize it because whatever is, whatever is happening is very important. Well, in this particular story, we have an encounter that's recorded by three of the Gospels, which is great because we get three different views of what's taking place here, three eyewitness accounts uh, uh, of what's happening here. But before we jump into that, let me show you something here. In the Gospels, how you approach Jesus is how he will respond to you. You know, those looking for a fight found one, and those looking for the truth found that too. In the Gospels, people came to Jesus, right? But those who came to Jesus trying to trip him up about theology, trying to make him mess up, trying to, trying to uh, find ways to make him look bad, Jesus had a way of dealing with them. But when somebody came to Jesus, broken, hurting, needing the truth, well, Jesus responded differently as well too. How you, how you approach Jesus in the Gospels, how you approached him, if you approached him with humility and, 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 and looking for the truth and sincerity, well, he responded, right? But if you came to him with aggressiveness, like, oh, I know the truth and what are you going to do? He kind of responded as well, too. And not in the same kind of aggression, but he responded in a way that was like, okay, you don't even want the truth. You just want to pick a fight. You know, you just want to put on Facebook how much you told me, well, you know, what, what, what was what, right? That's all you really want. How we approach Jesus is how he responds to us. And the reason I say that to you, this particular story we're going to look at this morning is confusing. Because the person that's approaching Jesus was not looking to trip him up. And I actually believe he was very sincere. So how Jesus responds is very interesting because the person doesn't realize what they're doing. The story, of course, is of the rich young ruler. Right? You know the story of the rich young ruler when he approaches Jesus, right? In Matthew's gospel, Matthew records the encounter this way. Just then, a man came up to Jesus asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? That statement there is perfect, right? It tells you everything you need to know about this person. In another gospel, it tells us that this was a young ruler, right? The Greek word is archon, right? It shows that this person was... Um, Politically uh, affluent, he was wealthy, he was from a good family, right? This person had it all, right? In uh, another gospel, it says, what, he uses the word, instead of what good thing must I do? He says, what thing must I inherit, right? Inheritance, right? Basically, at the very end, what he's saying is, what is the minimum I have to do to get my reward? What's his reward? What's he really asking? How do I get to heaven? What is the least amount of discomfort I must endure to get to heaven, right? Because I believe there is a heaven. I believe there is eternity. I just don't want my life to be turned upside down for it. So what's the least amount that I must do to get to heaven? Now, here's the thing, right? Here's the trap. One of the things I didn't realize about this story is when the ruler comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what he's actually doing is he's actually being familiar and overly familiar. With a rabbi, you would not speak to them that way, right? Now, we know at this particular time that Jesus was probably 32, uh, probably maybe uh, gusting to 33. So he's young, right? He's still a young rabbi. This young ruler, we think, might be the equal age. So he's coming to Jesus saying, hey, we're equals. You know, I'm, I'm wealthy. You're famous. Let's have a conversation, right? And so there's an overly familiar part here. Now look at the trap that Jesus lays for him. In Mark's gospel, it says this, Why do you call me good, Jesus answered? No one is good except God alone. Now what Jesus could have said is nobody is good except me. I'm perfect, right? But instead, Jesus says, okay, you know from your, from your, from your Sunday school teaching that only thing that is good is God. 
right? I love how 1 John 1, 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Why do we think we have to come to church and pretend? Why do we have to pretend that our lives are all together? Aren't we just deceiving ourselves? Aren't, aren't we really trying to say, oh, how's life? Oh, it's good. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's, I'm good. It's good. So good. I'm good, right? When really it's not that good. And we, what, what, what kind of church would we be if we said something like this? Okay, you're not good. What's going on? Okay, what, what's happening here, right? Stop deceiving yourself and trying to deceive me. I know, I know, right? We're all kind of messed up that way, right? And so Jesus lays a trap for this young man because Jesus is trying to see if he's open. So he says, good teacher, and Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't call me good. The only person that's good is God. Now look at the response, okay? Here's the reveal. Jesus gives him a list of what good looks like. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. If I was to say to somebody, are you a good person? They'd say, oh, yeah, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. As, a, as if, you know, mass murder is the way of kind of finding goodness or not, right? That's, that's what we do, right? When people say, are you a good person? Like, well, I haven't killed anybody today. Uh, I felt like it yesterday, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, right? And we put this list together, right? Because Jesus is trying to figure out, do you understand what goodness really is? Do you understand what I'm really asking you? And look at his response in verse 20. All these I have kept, young man. What do I still lack? And in one version of the gospel, it says, all these I've done since I was a child. In other words, he's saying, I am good. I'm good. I'm good looking. I got a good bank account. I got a great credit rating. I'm good right? So isn't heaven now mine, right? Now, Mark's gospel has this line that nobody else does. Now, you know that Mark's gospel was written by Peter, right? Peter uh, recited his gospel to his disciple Mark, and Mark recorded. So Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel, right? And in Peter's gospel, it actually says something very interesting, because Jesus is going to say something, but Peter, for some reason, this guy who always seems to mess up, right? This guy wanted us to understand something. And in Mark's gospel, it says this. In Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 20, he says this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Whatever is about to happen, (laughs) understand something, that Jesus loves this young man. That whatever Jesus is about to say to him, whatever Jesus is going to throw down for him, you got to understand that it comes out of the heart of love from his God. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The one thing, the only thing, right? What's wrong with this young man? He does not hate his life enough, right? He does not love his wealth less than he loves God. What good thing must I do to have an eternal life? Don't do all these bad things, done. Check mark, check, check, check that box. I'm ready to go. But what he doesn't realize is love your neighbor as yourself. How could somebody so wealthy, so affluent be living for themselves when those around them may be living in, in poverty? Do you really love your neighbor if you're in that, in, in that kind of a place? Do you really love your, your honor your mother and your father? Because I'm pretty sure every child has had an angry moment, right? But according to this rich young ruler, he's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. He doesn't understand how far he is from God. Now look at his response. And Luke, uh, I love what Luke says in this one. Luke chapter 18, verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Right? If it was us, we would say something like this. When we hear this, we become very sad because we are very busy. When we hear this, we are very sad because we are very popular. When we hear this, we become very sad because we are very comfortable. See, when we approach Jesus, we come to him and say, 
I'm good, right? I'm good. I go to church every so often. You know, I, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. And Jesus is like, this one thing that you lack. You don't hate your life enough. You don't hate the things that you pursue after enough. And we say to Jesus, Jesus, don't you understand? I have at least 300 followers on my Instagram account. I am very popular. My weekends are booked from here till you, you don't understand, Jesus. I'm very popular. Jesus, I'm so busy. And Jesus, I'm busy doing good things. I'm getting good grades. I'm, I'm, I'm working really hard at my job and all that. And Jesus looks at us and he loves us. And he says, one thing you lack. Don't replace me with anything else you pursue. That's the thing that we lack. What was the lack in the life of the rich young ruler? What was it, the thing that separated him from God? Well, I think there's, it comes down to three parts. We've talked about these three parts uh, over the last couple of weeks. The thing I think he lacks is faith without sacrifice. He talks about, I think he lacks disciple discomfort. And Jesus said, let me explain this. Faith without sacrifice. Sometimes we believe that we can pursue after God and pursue everything else. And one doesn't kind of supplant the other. And unfortunately, that's not true, right? Remember, we look at Luke chapter 12, verse 30. For the pagan world runs after such things, and the Father knows that you need them, right? So what's, what's Jesus trying to say? The pagans are after riches and wealth, right? Remember, we talked about the bigger, better, more. Bigger, better, more. That's all we pursue after in our culture, right? Every time technology comes out or, or we're looking for money, we're looking bigger, better, more. That's what the world runs after. And, 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 and Jesus has a word for people who like that. Pagans. Pagans, people who are outside of God's truth. And Jesus says, God knows you need that. There's nothing wrong with having good grades, nothing wrong with having a good job or pursuing these things, but if you don't love these things less than you love God, it supplants God, it replaces God, and it becomes an idol in your life. Disciple discomfort. We've been talking about this series about about scrambled, about how it can be uncomfortable to pursue after things of God. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you cannot be my disciples. See, we're not, Jesus not, does not care about conversions. Now, he, he, let me clarify that, okay? At some point in time, somebody will, who is a Christ follower will have said yes to Jesus. But what we don't realize is when we say yes to Jesus, we have to say no to everything else. Jesus gets the center. He gets the first focus. He gets the first thought in our brain. He gets everything, right? That's what he deserves. He is God. He is good. He is everything. And everything else that we do, while it may be good, cannot supplant what God wants for us. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. What Jesus is looking is not for us to check off a little box that says Christian. He's looking for disciples. And to be a disciple is to be uncomfortable with this world, with, this, with the way we live. And the final thing is the Jesus and. Remember, we looked at this in James. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Jesus and. You know what? I want to have my riches and Jesus. I want to have my popularity and Jesus. I want to have this great job and Jesus. Jesus and. Jesus and. Jesus is like, no, no. Not just Jesus and. It's just Jesus. It's all you get is Jesus. It's all you need. It's all, it's all that we'll have. And in those moments of time of pain and suffering... It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how popular you are. It doesn't matter how busy you are. In that time of pain and suffering, you're looking for meaning. You're looking for purpose. And only Jesus, only God can give that to us. Remember this phrase? Every what in your life needs to be changed, needs to change to a who. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What do I lack? And Jesus says, take every what 
and change it to who. Every who in Whoville, you're thinking the same thing. I thought I'd just throw it in there, right? Every who in your life, every what in your life needs to be changed to a who. What will make me happy? What am I pursuing? What, 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 what? Jesus is like, it's who. It's me. It's me. It's always me. It's me. There's not enough money that's going to make you happy. There's not enough uh, fame or friendships or relationships. There's nothing perfect about this world except for God. Every what in your life needs to be changed to a who. If the young ruler came to Jesus and said, who can complete my life? Who can, who can show me meaning? Who can show me a better way to live? Jesus is like, me? But if you think that it's a what, God, what am I missing in my life? That's all you ask sometimes. What am I missing? What do I want? What do I have? What can I pursue? What vacation can I take? What job can I get? What salary do I want? What, what, what? And you get it? You want more. You get it? You want more. You want more. You want more. Because your what will never satisfy your life. It's the who. And the who is Jesus. Let me wrap this puppy up. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is probably the best proof that the Bible was not written by human beings. Because John chapter 6 is kind of a moment in time where Jesus actually does a bad job of building his church. Now, here, let me explain this, okay? Jesus actually didn't have 12 disciples. You know that he actually had 72 disciples. And in John chapter 6, Jesus does something very interesting. He has a conversation. And he says to disciples, right? 72 disciples, but how many people have in the room here? Maybe a little bit more, a little less, whatever. And to 72 people, he says this, hey, you want to follow me? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Where do I sign you up? Right? And, and, and the 60 turn to each other and like, ew? Cannibalism? Are, are you kidding me? Like, this is what I left everything for for this crazy person who wants me to eat his flesh and drink his blood? I don't think so, right? In John chapter 6, verses 66 to 67, look what Jesus says. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And look at Jesus, what he says. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Because there's only 12. Seven, 60 of the 72 leave, and there's only 12 left. And Jesus says to them, don't you guys want to go too? Right? Don't you want to go too? Now look at Peter, right? A lot of talk about baseball right now. Everyone's a baseball fan right now, right? Peter, if he was a baseball player, would always strike out, except for... He, he tends to hit a grand slam like one in every eight games. Like every time he gets up to the plate, he like just, just strikes out. But every so often, Peter just hits it out of the park. And look at Peter's response, verse 68 to 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God, right? Jesus says, to the, to the 672, what do you think you're following? What is it you're pursuing in life? What is it that you, that you think is going to satisfy you? And Jesus, Peter's response is, Lord, it's not a what, it's who. And that who is you. We don't understand what you just said there, but we know you meant something more. And we're going to ask a deeper question. We're going to say, Lord, here's, here, here's the answer. Peter took the what and he changed it to a who. Your lives are busy, I know. You are scrambling, you are chasing, I get that. And the things you're scrambling and chasing may not be bad. They're good. But I want to introduce you to somebody who will make you great. And that's Jesus. And the greatness doesn't come from your bank account. doesn't come from your relational stability. does not come from your grades or your work or anything else. It's not the what's that make you great. It's the who. And when you pursue after Jesus, it doesn't matter what is taken from you. It doesn't matter what's given to you. It doesn't define you. God does.